Welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the first podcast episode of our new sub-series, The Indian Ocean World at a Glance. My name is Renee Manderville, a project manager at the Indian Ocean World Center, or IOWC, at McGill University. Thank you so much for downloading. The Indian Ocean World at a Glance subseries will delve into the details of specific countries, states, environmental, historical, or other phenomena of the social sciences, as well as general information regarding the Indian Ocean World. While our Indian Ocean World podcast series will interview specialists on their ongoing or published research within the IOW, or Indian Ocean World, our At a Glance subseries will place a microscope over the general research surrounding a topic or region, allowing our speakers to branch into the research of their fellow scholars, permitting a deeper understanding of the topic for our listeners. So to help facilitate this, today I'm joined by two of our regular contributors, Drs. Archisman Chowdhury and Philip Gooding, both of whom are postdoctoral fellows at the IOWC. Hi, Rennie. Thank you so much for having me here. Hi, Rennie. Good to be here again. Great to have you guys. Uh, so you'll hear more from Archisman and Philip later on in the podcast, but today we are very lucky to be joined by Professor John Unruh, an Associate Professor of Geography at McGill University, who will discuss the humanitarian crisis in Yemen. Having earned a PhD in geography at the University of Arizona, Professor Unruh's core research interests include war-affected land regime land rights regimes, the peace process and recovery from armed conflict, and the intersection between land rights and environmental change. So for those of you who missed our last podcast with Professor Anru regarding transitional justice in the Middle East and Northern Africa, Northeast Africa, a link can be found at the bottom of this podcast and may serve as a helpful as helpful in terms of understanding more about Professor Anru's expertise in transitional justice, trust building, and the peacemaking process in war-torn regions. So check it out. Professor Anu has been engaged in over 50 consultancies on international development in various war-affected states, including assisting the Yemeni government and the UN in creating and implementing land claims programs in Yemen. He has translated his work into a policy environment as a partner with the United Nations Environmental Program, or UNEP. Moreover, in addition to being a partner of the Indian Ocean World Center's Appraising Risk Project, he holds the title of Director of the Canadian Field Studies in Africa Program, which is centered at McGill, and has published numerous peer-reviewed journal articles and book chapters, as well as co-edited various volumes. So needless to say, Professor Anru, we're very excited to have you with us today to discuss the humanitarian crisis in Yemen. And... Uh, for you to provide our listeners with a tangible, clear, and easily understandable overview of this very complicated but very important predicament. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here and uh, and look forward to our, our discussion on Yemen today. Yeah. Um, so I guess I'll start us off. So Professor Unruh, um, I'll be begin by asking you to kind of start from the roots of the conflict of Yemen. What is happening? How did Yemen get to where it is presently? How did this region that was once the heart of ancient Arabia become a country stricken with civil conflict, war, and humanitarian desperation? Thanks. Well, um, Yemen is, is one of those interesting places that have, have had a history of uh, multiple conflicts that, that have intersected uh, over time. Uh, most recently, the, the beginning of, of the current conflict uh, started in the north of the, of the country. Um, with the Zayeda um, uh, group um, wanting more autonomy, 
and uh, pursuing his interest uh, to the south. Um, this was um, occurred at a time when Yemen was experiencing its own uh, Arab Spring. Um, that Arab Spring uh, effort uh, acted in kind of fits and starts as the government of, of Saleh at, at the time uh, first agreed to and then backed away from uh, agreements with, with the, the opposition of the Arab Spring on numerous occasions. Um, uh, the Gulf Cooperation Council, the GCC, uh, stepped in and was able to uh, negotiate an end to the, the Saleh re regime, um, at, at which point uh, his uh, vice president, I believe it was, uh, Mr. Hadi, was uh, put in power for a, a transitional period. He is still, Mr. Hadi, the, the official uh, head of, uh, of state. Um, so a reluctant uh, Mr. Hadi, Mr. Uh, Saleh stepped down. Um, the, uh, the Houthi um, uh, uh, movement grow, grew more emboldened um, and uh, started to push south um, as it started to um, uh, pursue its claims over, over territory. Um, what I think took a lot of outsiders by surprise was the inability of the official uh, Yemeni military to prevail over what was a untrained and uh, sort of a, a dispersed group of uh, uh, armed insurgents coming from the north in the, in the, uh, the form of the, the Houthi movement. Um, but but the, the official Yemen, Yemeni military operates in an interesting way. It's fairly, um, fairly divisive, it's fairly fractured. There is no single overall command. The different factions are aligned with different, um, uh, different power brokers within the, the uh, Yemeni government. And so coordination against uh, the rising Houthi movement was, was a, a difficulty. Uh, particularly after the uh, the uh, uh, Arab Spring, where Mr. Saleh stepped down, because in stepping down, he of course retained his loyalty and his allegiance with his own faction of, of the Yemeni military, which um, uh, eventually aligned itself with the Houthis. Uh, so you have a, um, a growing Houthi movement now joined by uh, a a trained and armed faction of the Yemeni military who followed Mr. Saleh uh, into exile, um, adding a great deal of, of momentum to, uh, um, to, the, uh, to the Houthi movement as it, it uh, came uh, southward and, and entered into, into Sana'a and, and the, uh, the areas around that. Um, Saudi Arabia, of course, became increasingly concerned uh, because a lot of this is on its, uh, its southern border, um, provided assistance to the official uh, uh, Yemeni government. Um, and, and things uh, turned then into uh, greater interest for the, the countries surrounding Yemen to, to get involved um, for issues of, of sect and, uh, and regional power and, and control and, and, and history. Um, and so as, as things move forward, the, the, the Houthi movement gained a good deal of, of steam and was able to take over most of uh, Western uh, uh, Yemen, uh, arriving ultimately in Aden, in, in the, the, the south, where it uh, briefly uh, took over before it was uh, pushed out 
by uh, the remains of a separate uh, issue in, in southern Yemen, which was the northern, northern Yemen, southern Yemen uh, uh, history of, of what has become significant uh, animosity. Uh, there was a brief union of, of, of the North and South, which officially still holds in the early 90s. The South then re recognized that this was very hasty as it started, started to get the, uh, the sort of short end of the agreement and experienced a great deal of land grabbing and discrimination from uh, the government in the North and then wanted, part of Southern Yemen wanted out uh, of that agreement. Northern Yemen uh, wouldn't uh, wouldn't have it, um, and started to um, to increasingly exert uh, sort of forced control. So, so the Houthi equation enters into that. So it gets complicated then, with a lot of factions wanting uh, different things. Um, the Saudis becoming increasingly involved. Those who were uncomfortable with Saudi greater Saudi involvement, such as Iran also wanted to uh, uh, be become uh, more involved. So it got complicated quick, all on the heels of, uh, of, of the Arab Spring. Uh, of course, the great losers in all of this is civil society, as they are in, in uh, every war. But, but as, as each side uh, pursued its own interests, its own military campaigns, the aggregate collateral damage among the civilian population uh, grew enormously. Uh, and as the international community attempted to step into uh, what was logistically a very difficult area of the world to deliver humanitarian aid to, um, uh, it became caught up in the military strategies of, of different sides, wanting to allow or disallow food aid, of course, into uh, the civilian population of, of, that were held by their opponents. So, so that complication uh, began and, and continues to this day um, with uh, various forms of military strategies intersecting with the international uh, humanitarian concern about this, the civilian population. Um, so so it, it becomes today a very uh, multi-headed, if you will, uh, of conflict. Um, and those there are those that seek uh, control over the country, uh, such as the, the Houthi, uh, uh, the, who are now established in Sana'a, the, the capital. Uh, the very strong movement of um, uh, separation in the south that has been recently uh, quieted by an international uh, effort to have the, the south remain in exchange for a good deal of, of autonomy. Um, are the Houthis agreeing to that or not? There's some discussion there. And so there, there's a lot that's going on in terms of uh, the, the fractured nature of the conflict, which makes delivery of humanitarian assistance very problematic, which then results in a food insecure uh, population being a, a very uh, a large concern internationally. Wow. Um, thank you so much, John. Um, there's a lot to unpack there. So I guess I'll pass the questioning on to Philip for now. Okay, thanks, Renee, and thank you very much, uh, John, for that. Um, your discussion about um, the distinctions between North and South Yemen brings up some further questions. Um, and as you elaborated in your 2016 research article entitled Mass Claims in Land, Pro Land and Property Following the Arab Spring um, Lessons from Yemen, land rights have been fraught in much of Yemen's history, particularly in the South. 
Um, what is the recent history of land rights in the South? Uh, and how is this relevant to Yemen's future? Yep, uh, very, uh, very uh, important question. Um, uh, as the Gulf Cooperation Council uh, worked with the, uh, the, the Yemen government, uh, both the departing Saleh government and the incoming uh, Hadi government, um, uh, there were two conditions that uh, Southern Yemen insisted on in the agreement toward a way forward uh, from the Arab Spring regarding southern Yemen. One was um, uh, a return of lands that had been confiscated by the north uh, in southern areas, and the other was um, uh, restitution of uh, or compensation for what was a, a long period of discrimination in terms of employment, both in civil society um, and, um, and in the military regarding uh, Southerners in the, the, the North. My involvement with the UN was to, to try to attend to the, the former, uh, to try to come up with a, uh, a restitution uh, equation that would return a lot of the lands in the South confiscated by uh, actors from the North and return those to uh, the original owners in, uh, in Southern Yemen. Easier said than done. The original owners are, of course, many. Uh, over time, there were a number of uh, expropriations and confiscations as uh, different governments and control in southern Yemen uh, uh, took place. And so the UN established a land commission and a, and a procedure uh, for um, uh, entertaining different land claims and being able to make uh, decisions about categories of, of claims uh, in order to move that demand uh, forward. So, so those two demands were part of the broader agreement to resolving the Arab Spring crisis in, in Yemen. Land rights and then compensation for discrimination in, uh, in employment. So, so that, that former process of uh, land rights restitution was underway in southern Yemen when the Houthi incursion took place in the south and uh, brought that process to, uh, to a standstill. Uh, one of the big questions, of course, is uh, moving forward, will that claims uh, and restitution program be able to start up again? That, and, and of course, I, I think that would happen with a great deal of difficulty, given that a lot of the, um, the, the processing was done in paper. So you had, uh, claimants from the Yemeni uh, civilian population filing claims with the land commission that included paper forms that included sometimes very old original documentation sometimes written on parchment and let on leather uh, regarding their their uh, claims to, to various lands those were all stored in Aden and it's it's unknown how much of those survived the, the Houthi incursion that that took took place some argue that the the entire building was burnt with with everything in it others uh indicate that before that happened uh a lot of that documentation was moved into various uh different different places uh, but it will be a difficulty to to move forward with with that approach to um to land claim there are other ways to to move forward with that but again that that'll be uh, uh, that'll be, be difficult. So, so there is a, a of course, uh, a militant 
part of the of the southern uh, southern Yemen question. Al Haraq is a is a movement that has both a military and a, and a political aspect to it, um, and so. Uh, that's a separation movement, and it it has uh, its interests in um, informing in withdrawing southern Yemen from the from the the union. Um, so so that's a, a player in the equation. Uh, there are those in the Gulf that are able to interact with uh, southern Yemen in a way that uh, seeks to have it remain part of the overall uh, union in, in Yemen, but but in a in a more autonomous way. Uh, so of course, southern Yemen sees itself as very much being outside of the, the realm of the uh, Houthi control. Um, an added dilemma there is is, uh, is the presence of Al Qaeda uh, in the Arabian Peninsula. They control areas uh, to the east of of, uh, of Aden, uh, that but they're also included historically in southern Yemen. So these are the areas of of desert as one moves east toward uh, toward Oman. Uh, some of that control of Al Qaeda does pierce into uh, southwestern Yemen, where Aden is, and where a lot of the valuable uh, lands are. So that's that's an additional part of uh, of the equation in in southern Yemen. My understanding is that as it stands presently, the uh, the desire and the strong push for separation has been uh, relaxed by by those in, in southern. Uh, southern Yemen uh, so far by by interest in the the, the Gulf states um, in exchange for greater autonomy. So so we'll see how that how that moves forward. Um, that is a fraught uh, fracture, as you can imagine. The, the north south divide a lot of animosity, particularly from the south toward the previous regime uh, led by uh, by Mr. Saleh in the north. The, the new uh, uh, government equation, of course, is run by the Houthis in, in the north. A um, lot of uh, a difficulty there, of course, between the Houthis and, and those that operate out, out of the, the south. So it remains to be seen, the, the ultimate political equation that, that uh, the, the north-south fracture produces there. Thanks. Thank you, John. That's, uh, you've elucidated it, uh, described a very complex topic in very simple terms there. Thank you very much for that. Um, not deviating away from the complicated topics, but going towards another one. Um, the situation in Yemen has frequently been described as a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And you kind of alluded to these regional dynamics um, in, your, in your answer to, to Rene's first question. Um, I wonder if you could delve into this into a little bit more depth. Now, um, firstly, explaining, I suppose, what a proxy war is to our listeners, um, and then discussing the accuracy of this summation. Is this more of a proxy war be behind more regional players, or is this more, or is it more the north-south divide, I suppose, um, in Yemen over the long term? Sure. Uh, so a, a proxy war is um, is is a, a conflict where an, an outside interest, usually a a country, a, a government uh, in a neighboring state, um, uh, is not liking what it sees in terms of greater gains by by its its foes in a country that is in conflict. So, so in Yemen, eh, the conflict there is initially homegrown. Um, and because uh, you have various sides fighting against the other, that creates an opportunity for external 
actors to gain uh, to gain greater influence if, if it can support one side and they prevail. So uh, you would have a, a government coming in and basically make, making an agreement with one side or another in, in the war, which goes something like this. We will help you out militarily. Uh, if you prevail, of course, uh, we're involved. And, um, and we will now have, then have greater influence in, in uh, the, the country. Um, and of course, in response to that, a, a neighboring country will say the same thing to uh, the opponent, right? In a homegrown uh, a conflict. And so that's what you have between, uh, initially starting between Saudi Arabia uh, supporting the, um, uh, uh, the government, uh, the official Yemeni government, um, led by Mr. Hadi, um, on one side, and then Iran becoming concerned with this uh, perceived greater influence by Saudi Arabia in Yemen, and offering its um, its backing to uh, to the Houthis on on the other side. Gets complicated in that at one point you also had um, Mr. Saleh, the, the former uh, head of state in. Uh, in Yemen, who did fight against the Houthis in previous incursions, then becoming allied with them uh, before he was then assassinated by the Houthis um, to, to create a, a sort of a, a swirl of, of complications. Enter the Gulf states, uh, which have, of course, back uh, varying sides in, in the conflict, and it's now become more than just the proxy being uh, wars concerning Saudi Arabia and Iran. It, it concerns Qatar, the Emirates, and others. So, so it's quickly become uh, serving proxy interests in, in a number of, of cases. So, so what happens is, is similar to what happens, say, in Syria, where the initial conflict starts off as homegrown and can get very quickly taken over by proxy interests who are, uh, in the case of, of, uh, of the Gulf, uh, have very well-funded militaries, uh, have a great deal of funding to then pour into the, the different sides of the homegrown uh, conflict to actually make it something different. So while that homegrown conflict, Houthis versus the central government, South versus North, Al-Qaeda versus others is still there, uh, it is layered upon a, a, a great deal more uh, military power and, and, and funding brought to bear by, by the proxy concerns that are, are going on, which, of course, results in a, a, an enormous mess, right? So, so where would one start to, to try to solve the, the conflict, given that you've got the homegrown interest meshing with proxy interests and and, um, and of course, the, the proxy interests see themselves as gaining uh, from all of the military funding and, and effort that they have uh, put into the, uh, to the, the conflict. So a very confusing answer to, uh, uh, to a straightforward question, which had a, a clearer answer, but it's, uh, it's a complicated um, uh, activity that's underway. Thanks, John. I, I was definitely expecting something complicated along those lines, so that's uh, perfectly fine. Um, that concludes my questions. Anyway, um, I think Archman has one for you, though. Uh, yes, thank you, Philip, and thank you, Professor Andrew. This whole discussion has been extremely interesting, uh, but I'm wondering, because you have been physically 
been there throughout the humanitarian collapse of Yemen. Why is the situation in Yemen being described as the greatest humanitarian crisis of current day society? What constitutes that? How do we measure this crisis? And in terms of your career experience, how would you hope to use transitional justice and trust building as a means of achieving peace in Yemen? Yes, very good question. I think one of the um, one of the, the, the challenges in, from uh, the humanitarian point of view is, um, as we discussed previously, because there are so many actors pursuing their uh, military objectives in Yemen, um, they have varying abilities to to pursue those those objectives, meaning to a large degree uh, targeting. Right. So if uh, military interest X wants to achieve a military objective against an opponent, how good is it at uh, targeting those resources to that military opponent as opposed to um, uh, the surrounding civilian population? It, it turns out uh, that in many cases, the different sides in the conflict are not very good at, at targeting. Um, and so they, they um, uh, are, are less able to achieve a military objective. And in trying to do that, there's a lot of, of civilian casualties that goes on. So that's everything from, of course, uh, the human, humanitarian calamity of, of death and destruction, dislocation, and the inability to engage in farming um, and, and engage in, in uh, obtaining uh, water. Two, uh, importantly for Yemen, um, accessing international food delivery. So, so Yemen is a very arid place. It, it had, was experiencing a great deal of, of water insecurity even prior to the conflict, which had raised a great deal of concern uh, internationally. Uh, so that water is necessary for the, the, the small amount of, of um, agriculture that to, to take place. Um, but importantly for Yemen, it is in a remote part of the world. It has a, a long coastline, which uh, one would think that would allow for a lot of access in terms of humanitarian uh, uh, shipping delivery. But because that delivery can only take place in specific ports, right, uh, two at most uh, three or, or four, those ports are, ports are easily choke points militarily and can easily be, be cut off so that you, while you can have an enormous amount of food aid on a ship uh, waiting to be delivered in Yemen, it, is, it can remain at anchor uh, offshore because uh, it cannot securely uh, dock and, and offload the uh, food aid uh, uh, into Yemen. So, so just logistically, it's, it's very difficult to get uh, even adequate amounts of food aid to a civilian population that is now dislocated and dispersed in a very arid uh, uh, climate where even obtaining water is a, is a difficulty. This means that food insecurity gets bad very, very quickly. Uh, unlike other conflicts that take place in areas that are more um, agronomically endowed where uh, things grow uh, water is plentiful, et cetera. You can sort of live off the land or, or cross an international boundary and, and become a refugee in a neighboring state, and uh, the UN can move in and set up camps, et cetera. That's difficult in Yemen because of this coastline. 
Um, and frequently there's been the direction of migration has been into Yemen from uh, Somaliland and, and Puntland uh, across the uh, across the water. At the same time, uh, I, Yemenis fleeing the conflict have difficulty, of course, traveling into Oman because of the um, uh, the extreme form of desert there, and then difficulty moving into Saudi Arabia as as, uh, as refugees because Saudi Arabia, of course, now is one of the belligerents in the, the, the conflict and is very concerned about people crossing into that border. So becoming a refugee and thereby allowing the international community to, to treat large populations as refugees is a difficulty. Um, and then getting into Yemen uh, with the amount of food aid needed is another difficulty, never mind then moving that food aid around to the places that is, is needed in Yemen. It has resulted in a very quick and very concerning level of food insecurity uh, that's, uh, that, that's un underway in, in Yemen. Uh, moving forward to your comment about transitional justice, that would seem to be a, a primary opportunity. Uh, transitional justice is, um, uh, uh, one of its strengths is that it is sort of a very, very broad idea. It can uh, use what it needs to use in order to pursue uh, forms of, of, uh, of justice in a way that, um, that is not seen as, as fixed in time. So you can work with very uh, short-term things like decrees and uh, judgments, and you can use a part of national law, part of international law, and you can make up a legal construct that serves a very short-term problem, and, and then it, it goes away. Given all of the various interests in, uh, in Yemen that are currently in conflict uh, and, and in need, it's going to be difficult to grab one version of a law, either Yemeni law, Saudi law, or even international law, and say, this is what will prevail and, and, and solve legally all of, of Yemen's problems. It looks like it's going to have to fall to transitional justice and forms of, uh, of um, approaches that have worked elsewhere, which can be tailored to Yemen in order to deal with problems in a transitional or short-term way as then Yemen moves, uh, moves forward. So transitional justice is something that has the ability to get buy-in from very diverse quarters, right? So when you have a problem like Yemen with very uh, many and very opposed uh, interests, uh, transitional justice perhaps does have a, a, a good deal of potential to, to engage these different interests and these different um, uh, strategies in, in a way to move, move forward. Uh, it's not going to be as neat and tidy as many lawyers would like. That's one of transitional justice's uh, challenges. It's not a neat and tidy set of laws. It is uh, uh, ambiguous, it's got some rough edges to it, uh, but it does seek to move forward with uh, societal justice as opposed to a, uh, the imposition or the implementation of a law that, that has a great deal of legal integrity and a, a great deal of, of, of legal backing. So, so transitional justice seeks to attend to social problems more than the, the niceties of, uh, of law. Uh, so, very good, uh, very good comment that that transitional justice um, uh, has a role in 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 Yemen's future. Thanks. 
Thank you so much, Professor Andrew. Uh, Rene, do you have any final thoughts? Um, I think I have one final question, just because we have you here, Professor Andrew. Um, so I know that many of our listeners, our friends, our colleagues, um, are activists. Apart from wanting um, more, and apart from wanting more of an understanding of the situation in Yemen, also want to contribute to ending the crisis and alleviating its effects on the Yemeni people. People, uh, so there's a lot of, I guess, contradictory information circulating about the best way to do this as third-party observers. Um, so I just want to know, in your opinion and your experience, what helps, what doesn't? Can you name certain organizations that you would maybe recommend getting involved with? Or do you have any other advice for those helping to play um, even, the t even the tiniest bit of a part? Yeah, uh, very good question. I, I think one of, the, one of the larger issues certainly today with, uh, with the pandemic uh, looming large in everybody's mind is that the, the, the international profile of the conflict in Yemen has, has slipped. Uh, to, to a, now a, a level where it's getting less attention uh, internationally. That attention is important because it can very directly derive, uh, drive uh, deliveries of, of food aid, as you can imagine. Um, and and, and uh, dr by driving delivery of, of food aid, it means more than just how many metric tons of grain can you put on a, a, a ship and end up in a a port in, in Yemen. It also um, involves the diplomatic muscle that is needed to talk to various groups in, in Yemen in order to open corridors for humanitarian assistance to be uh, provided. Sometimes this involves making arrangements with various groups that, that one would rather not interact with. Um, and so one has to sometimes focus on the humanitarian as opposed to the ultimate um, or even the near-term uh, um, issues with, with the, the, the different groups. Uh, the UN has had some success in, in doing that, humanitarian corridors, working with the different sides so that uh, humanitarian assistance does in fact get, uh, get delivered. The higher profile that, that of course the Yemen conflict has, the, the, the more that this, this can happen. So, so raising the issue. Uh, particularly with international actors, including bilateral actors, that would include, say, the Canadian government, um, uh, and, and its interaction with other uh, outside actors, in other words, those with interests in, uh, in Yemen, including Saudi Arabia, UAE, uh, Iran, et cetera, um, would, would probably uh, go a long way toward, or toward regaining profile and in in moving forward with some precise ways to deliver uh, humanitarian uh, assistance. Uh, of course, Saudi Arabia is under uh, pressure now to, to bring this, this conflict to a close. It has not gone the way that, that Saudi Arabia is, is the primary power in the conflict has thought it would, not as quickly, not as decisively. Um, and so there are, are, uh, there's a great deal of pressure now on, on finding diplomatic uh, ways to at least bring it to uh, a place where the hostilities have stopped so that a peace building and peacemaking uh, a phase of the conflict can, can engage. Thanks. Um, okay, so essentially just don't stop talking about it and continue right. spreading. The worst government to, to raise yeah. the profile. Yeah. 
Um, okay, well, thank you so much, Professor Unruh, uh, for joining us today, for answering your questions, and for shedding some light uh, on many of, for many of us on this very complicated situation, um, but very interesting situation, of course. Uh, thank you to you also, Artisman and Philip, for asking your questions. And thank you to you, the listeners, for downloading. Once again, my name is Renee Manderville, and you've been listening to the subseries of the Indian Ocean World podcast, The Indian Ocean World at a Glance. The Indian Ocean World podcast would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. This podcast series is part of the SSHRC-funded partnership project, Appraising Risk, Past and Present, interrogating historical data to enhance understanding of environmental crises in the Indian Ocean world.